I think that you are wise to say that you don't know what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. the, the wisest man uh, are in, 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 let's say, Western philosophy, Socrates says, I, I only know that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and on both sides of this issue, so uh, the first thing I'll say is I didn't watch that movie. Yeah. Some people who I think are very thoughtful and reflective who did watch it gave a description to me and I was like, yeah, that, that doesn't sound credible and it's, it's yeah. not how I'm going to spend two hours on a Friday night. Um, the, what I, what I have seen happening. So like one thing you could take from that German pathology study with the autopsies mm-hmm. is only four out of the 35 people who dropped dead unexpectedly at home, um, died because of vaccine induced myocarditis. Okay. And that's not completely confirmed, but it, it seems like the most likely explanation. So I think it's deeply irresponsible if you're on Twitter and somebody faints somewhere or has a heart attack somewhere to say, this is the vaccine. You, they might not even have been vaccinated. So there, there's just a lot of deeply irresponsible claims coming out uh, from anti, like the sort of the old traditional anti-vaccine movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think they're in the medical establishment is a reflex of like their conspiracy theorists, their uh, misinformation mongers. Uh, they're very bad people. We need to censor them. And no, the vaccine doesn't kill anybody. It's perfectly safe. And it's like, well, no, hang on. Absolutism mm-hmm. on both sides. I understand why they're falling into a reflexive absolutism because the claims mm-hmm. made on the anti-vaccine side are, are irresponsible and often false. Yeah. Um, but four out of 35 out of a population of 11 million is still not zero. So we have to be really careful to be nuanced at all times. and you are extremely nuanced and uh and and i i'm just uh, i feel like we're in the twilight zone really that someone as nuanced as you are has been attacked as viciously um you know as as, as you've been for the last uh, year and a half or more um and so that's going to be my next question um um this recent toronto star story that if you can talk about it um uh, by bruce arthur who is a sports writer, but anointed as a public health expert. Um, and ironically, he seems critical of the fact that you hadn't received uh, specialist training um, uh, for your position as acting health officer uh, at this health unit um, without having the self-realization to realize he has zero training in public health. And, uh, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted you to tell me what you do as a critical care physician, because you know, uh, do I believe a critical care physician or do I go with what a sports writer is saying in the Toronto Star? For me, the choice is very clear. Um, so, you you know, you point to distortions and misrepresentations in his, uh, you know, in this interview that you did with him. Could you could you set the rec- record straight for us? You know, and why do you think your views were were misrepresented? What is going on here? Um why my views were misrepresented, um, I can't speak for Bruce. In fact, I, I would invite Bruce to explain why he did that because mm-hmm. my views were misrepresented. I explained it very carefully to him. Um, his editors must have explained it to him because they printed corrections. He went on Twitter the day after mm. and kind of explained how he was right all along and, and made more factual errors. 
Um, Amazing. I, so I can't, which I called out in his replies. Um, yeah. I, I can't speak for his headspace, um, but I, I think you should invite him uh, to, to be on the podcast. I, I would love to hear. Um, more globally, socially, I think people were terrified of COVID. Um, and I think there's a, um, I think there was a whole swath of people who hadn't really spent a lot of time reflecting on their mortality, mm. who suddenly all had to all at once. I think that this is the first pandemic we've gone through with social media, with your phone buzzing in your pocket, telling you constantly how many cases, how many deaths is the ICU full, right. you have enough ventilators. Um, so I was a medical resident during H1N1 working in ICU. And I, um, I'm pretty sure I got, I was working with H1N1 patients and I had the worst flu of my life. I, nobody was interested in testing me. Public health didn't call me. The mm -hmm. hospital called me every day to ask if I could come back to work yet. Like the idea, uh, and H1N1 um, was particularly dangerous to people in their 20s. Um, so I was more at risk of death back then in 2008, but hardly anyone even remembers the H1N1 pandemic. So that's very interesting. So H1N1 was actually more deadly uh, as far as young people were concerned. Um, is that, is that uh, exactly? Yeah, I, I, um, I, and I, I wouldn't be able to remember the age cutoffs. I yeah. remember I did the own calculation yeah. for me as a, uh, yeah. as a, I think I was 25 at that time. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. In both cases, like you can, neither number is certain for the mortality mm -hmm. risk because there's more cases than mm -hmm. tests that are performed. Um, but yeah, something really changed in terms of how we as a society deal with this sort of thing. And I, I, mm -hmm. I just, COVID killed far more people, no question. But I, I am saying the the alacrity of our response was yeah. terribly different. And I think social media is part of that. So I think people, uh, another issue is that China has been ascendant since H1N1. Mm. And this um, virus happened to start in China. Well, possibly not a coincidence. Um, and so the first worldwide response to this pandemic was a communist authoritarian, authoritarian dictatorship response. Um, and throughout in my initial commentary, I was, I was like, hey, everyone, like, look at South Korea and Japan and Taiwan. They're all having really successful pandemic responses that are not playing by the uh, Chinese Communist Party playbook. And, and Taiwan, for, for most of the pandemic, was doing better than, than mainland China. Hmm. Um, but, but yet the World Health Organization made some statements um, explicitly promoting the, the authoritarian lockdown response. So all that taken together, I think people were just terrified. They thought um, this this new uh, superpower is going to teach us the proper response and mm -hmm. like get on the team. You're not on our team. You're on the team with the anti-science anti-vaxxers. And I was like, no, I, I have more vaccines than most people because I've done work overseas. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I think it was just frank tribalism. Um, yeah. So you, you, if you're not saying words on our team then you must be on their team yeah absolutely like i i interviewed um uh, recently i interviewed thomas fatsi i don't know if you uh, know of uh, thomas fatsi he, he and his co-author have a great new book out called the COVID consensus and he was on my podcast recently and uh he made he made a very interesting point to me uh which you know which i uh, picked up from his book and we were talking about it on the show uh, that the Western world really had not um, experienced death in this manner. Uh, you know, there was a bureaucratization of death in our society. You know, uh, sick people, um, dying people are sent to hospices, hospitals, long-term care homes, retirement homes, 
whatever, and there's a whole bureau bureaucracy of death involved, and you're kind of just kind of, um, uh, you know, hermetically sealed from all of that stuff. And so this was the first time where we were, as you say, um, every day getting updates, uh, minute by minute updates about how many people died in Italy, for example. Um, and uh, whereas in the rest of the world, say in Asia, for example, or in India in particular, death is like an everyday part of life. You see it all the time around you. Yeah, I, and, and frankly, as an ICU doctor, as any hospital doctor, you see yeah. it uh, every day, all, all the time. And I think I think another sort of confluence in events for why did Ontario and Canada have such draconian responses? I think our healthcare system was on its last legs pre-pandemic. I think the, um, the folks who are responsible for the catastrophe of our healthcare system in Ontario were kind of granted a three-year excuse mm. um, to use at all times. But in some ways I've been in positions like me have been the frog boiling in water where things were getting worse and worse every year. I, I started med school 20 years ago mm. and people would be lying in stretchers in the hall back then. And every year it's been a little bit more. And I, I do remember in the winter of 2019 thinking, I don't even know that I want to be associated with this mm. anymore. I had a 92 um, year old woman who was in the hall, like, um, it just no no darkness, no privacy, uh, no place to use the washroom uh, on a, a very uncomfortable stretcher. And her seven-year-old daughter came in and said, like, should I just take her home? And I said, frankly, you probably should. Like, she needs to be in the hospital, but mm. this is inhumane and she's not going to get better here. Yeah. Um, and, but that 92-year-old woman does not have a podcast, um, is not, uh, mm. is not invited to conferences, uh, isn't about to write a book about what happened to her, but it's awful. So uh, by the time that you get to feel the inhumanity of our healthcare system collapsing, you're you're usually not in a position to make a lot of noise about it. Yeah. Another thing that you mentioned, and it just occurred to me, uh, is that uh, um, that you know I expected authoritarian uh, governments around the world to really take advantage of the pandemic and really push hard on authoritarian. Uh, measures of uh, you know and just use the pandemic as an excuse I've actually seen the opposite like you mentioned Bolsonaro I, I I give you India as an example yes the Indian government I was actually there during the first lockdown and they um, did I think one of the, the the world's most draconian lockdown it lasted for like two months locking down 1.1 uh, billion people and it it truly was like a lock a, a real lockdown you couldn't even the hospitals were locked down if you could believe that uh, for the first few days um so you know I, I just it's perplexing you know why is it that liberal democracies like canada uh, new zealand uh, australia i mean these are the last places on the planet that i would have thought would have gone you know, would have, would have implemented these extreme measures. I mean, there are these um, interviews of Jacinda Ardern uh, that are making the rounds now where, you know, she's like saying in this, you know, it almost sounds evil. You know, if you don't get tested, we're going to put you in a quarantine and uh, you're going to be there in in that quarantine facility indefinitely, basically, if you, you refuse to get tested for COVID. How did this how did this happen? Like, I, it's it's a puzzle for me. I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. I don't, um, I do not have a complete political theory mm -hmm. on what happened. Um, I think part of it was the uh, extremely divisive global figure of Donald Trump. Mm. And 
as soon as Donald Trump wanted to open up, um, because like, you know, hydroxychloroquine, I don't, I never thought it worked, but I never thought it was a, a public threat that we all need to censor anyone who mentions it on, on social media. I think the fact that Donald Trump had mentioned it at a press conference really mm-hmm. motivated a lot of animosity towards it. People forget that um, Trump uh, did Operation Warp Speed to get the vaccine to market faster than usual. And a, a number of prominent uh, left-wing figures, including Kamala Harris, said, I'm never taking this Trump vaccine. That was back in like November of 2020. Mm. So I, 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 I kind of think he recalibrated. And, and by the way, I'm, I've never been a supporter in, in a and at times have been staunchly critical of, of Trump. Um, I think he recalibrated the left-right divide in a, in a totally nonsensical way a lot of the time. Because of course, no, I would not have predicted that um, more liberal progressive places would be locking elderly people in their nursing home r- room uh, mm-hmm. without being allowed to go outside and see the sun for weeks slash months at a time. That yeah. That is a deep surprise to me. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, you know, the w- one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, uh, right now, where we are in the pandemic now, um, I've, I, my sense is, and I've said this many times in several of my columns recently, that much of the advanced world, Western world, um, uh, you know, essentially seems to have moved, moved on from the pandemic and removed all pandemic measures. Japan, of all places, last week said that COVID-19 should be treated like the flu. Uh, yet here in Canada, we seem to be stuck in some kind of a time warp where, you know, we're constantly being told to get vaccinated. Uh, perhaps we should bring mask mandates uh, in. Um, what do you make of this disconnect, uh, Canada versus the rest of the world? I mean, let's take Japan, for example, of, of highly mask-compliant mask society, highly vaccinated, but yet uh, the Japanese government said that we're just going to treat it like the flu now. Um, I, I think, so the first part of my answer might be a, a, a second part to the last question. Um, yeah. I, there's this important book by uh, a political theorist named James Burnham, uh, called the managerial revolution, uh, where he, he he was explaining like the 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 twentieth the 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 big conflict in the twentieth century between the far right, i.e. fascism, and the far left, i.e. communism, is going to be won. And he he was not happy about this by managerialism, by the the um, uh, ascendance of this man, um, professional managerial class, the laptop class, the Davos set the people who um, claim to be much smarter than everyone else. And, and they'll just run things in this sort of technocratic mm-hmm. fashion. And yeah. you'll be happy with whatever they come up with, because obviously they know better than you, whether you whether you should have your prom or your wedding or your dad's funeral. Um, and I think Canada very, very heavily subscribes, at least the government and the bureaucracy of Canada. Of course, the bureaucracy does. It is a, bureau, it is a bureaucratic philosophy. And, it, and it's very centered in Ottawa, which I think is why the trucks went there. So I think... Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of why we're seeing it so heavily in Canada. The other issue in Canada is actually two more issues. One, for some reason, we have very strongly tied our national identity to a healthcare system that isn't good. Um, Mm. In all of the rankings of OECD countries and their healthcare systems, we're always second last, um, but at least we're beating the uh, United States, which is the elephant in the room. And and that's all we really care about. So we've come to see, take great pride in our ability to do healthcare here, um, even though it's not that good. And it's, it's an unfortunate myth that we can't let go of. Um, 
and oh, I, I had one other. Oh, and, and we don't have a functioning media, which I know you're able to talk about um, <laughs> with more depth than I am. But if um, often uh, political figures, and you know, I'll, I'll name the prime minister Trudeau would say, "We're we're doing this trucker mm. mandate um, because that's what the science shows." And I mm. was. I was just flabbergasted going like, will one of these journalists in the scrum say, which scientific paper are you quoting, Prime Minister? You don't just get to say, the science supports my policy. Right. Um, somebody say, which science, please. Yeah, well, that has never happened. And I have, you know, as really an outsider in journalism, um, I've um, commented on this many, many times. Like, I'm not at these press conferences, um, but uh, maybe I should start going to them, uh, uh, you know, if I get the time. But the, the point is, I would have asked that question. Like, uh, what is this based on? You know, why, where are you, uh, how, how are you implementing this policy? You know, what's the science here? Yet we were told, follow the science, follow the science. And, you know, but the end result really is that, you know, we've created a great uh, distrust in public health, wouldn't you say? Um. I, th I think that's true. I don't, I, I don't know of a, a scientific way to answer that question. I do maybe know one. I know that um, a lot of figures in public health have said mm -hmm. you need to get your toddlers vaccinated against COVID. And at Ontario currently, 4% um, of toddlers have received two doses of vaccine against COVID. So that it stands to reason that 96% of parents and toddlers aren't buying these recommendations currently. Mm. Um, and two years ago, I think that they would have been lining up in droves um, mm. to follow th that advice. So yes, yeah. I think there quite obviously has been a, an erosion of public trust. Um, it, and some of that's going to be terribly detrimental. Like if you're not careful, if you're not nuanced, if you've said things that turned out to be ridiculous or untrue, which certain public health figures in Canada have at certain times, I don't want to call out names, mm -hmm. um, that's going to diminish public trust. Um, and it, it should, um, but there are terrible drastic downsides to that. Currently, we don't know in Ontario uh, what percentage of the population and the, the young population is vaccinated against polio. That's a really, yeah. really bad problem because polio can be absolutely devastating for children. And the vaccine is 99% effective for life at preventing you from getting it. And I, I know kind of anecdotally mm -hmm. that there are a lot of folks who, in addition to not believing public health about the COVID vaccines, are not believing public health about the traditional vaccines that we have 70 years of, of safety data on and we know how good they are. And that's a big problem. Yeah. Well, uh, Matt, I know um, you're very busy, and uh, but I one final question for you. On a personal note, uh, you know you've uh, uh, very courageously taken on these positions uh, right from the beginning of the pandemic, um, and of course you've taken a lot of heat. Uh, I'm sure uh, you know it hasn't been easy for you and your family. Um, and but you know when you look back on all of this now, you've basically been proved proved right, um, and and. Uh, What's more, you have, um, you know, the health district that you um, that you uh, were in charge of seeing a 30 percent, um, um, you know, um, um, uh, lower mortality from COVID than the provincial average. Um, do you feel a sense of vindication that it was all worth it? And if in hindsight, uh, if you knew in hindsight, 
you know, how much heat you were going to uh, uh, take for challenging the establishment and, you know, and this group think out there, would you, would you, would you have still done the same things? Would you, or would you have approached things differently? Yes, absolutely. And I, I've just been continually surprised by yeah. the blowback. Um, I, in some ways, this is not the, I, I'm not living in the society that I thought I was living in. I, I, I thought we cherished um, evidence, cost benefit analysis, freedom of speech, hashing it out, uh, ha- having a friendly argument, like we mm-hmm. can agreeing to disagree. These like very basic civil society um, uh, ethos or, or this very basic ethos. Um, I, I'm, I'm so perplexed that it's not the case, um, but at no point could I have done any other, like um, there's the Elon Musk uh, quote, if, you, if, if nobody makes the stuff, there won't be any stuff. If nobody mm-hmm. criticizes bad policy, there will not be any good policy. So yeah. um, it's been this weird um, tightrope to walk between saying the most true thing and saying the most effective thing. And I, I frankly have a lot of sympathy for public figures who maybe I was critical of three years ago, where I, I, I now understand that you can't say everything that you have to say in public life on day one, because then there will be no day two. You have to kind of um, meet the public where they are at, what they're ready to hear. Um, but you you always have to be pushing towards truth and reason or else we're, we're not going to have truth or reason. Like my, my um, family are, are refugees from former Yugoslavia and uh, they, they fled because they were starving um, and being politically persecuted. Uh, and that that can happen here. It, it won't happen here because we're going to speak out and, and we're we're winning, but it's... Mm-hmm not speaking out is not an option. Well, yeah, it's definitely not an option for me. Um, uh, even if I tried, I mean, I, I just can't find uh, it in me to not uh, speak up. And um, it, it's it's a good thing and a bad thing, I think, both at the same time. But I'm so glad that you're speaking up, Matt, and that you have been speaking up for all of us during the pandemic. And uh, it's been such a great uh, privilege and honor to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, and also you know, that, uh, that you'll join us again sometime soon. And, uh, and hopefully we'll have other things to talk about other than COVID-19. I hope that so much. And uh, <laughs> I just want to say you're, you're a hero of mine and uh, I, I will always come when you call. Oh, thank you, Matt. Real pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Bye.